Welcome to the latest edition of Talking About Methods. Today I'm really delighted to welcome Mark Cohen, who's an assistant professor in the School of Law at University College Dublin. And Mark is going to talk to us about a subject that's really important to a lot of socio-legal scholars and about which I know he'll have a lot to say, which is interviewing judges. But could I just get the ball rolling, Mark, by asking you to tell our audience a little bit about the sort of research that you do? Thanks very much, Linda. And uh, yeah, it's a great honour to be asked to uh, participate in the podcast. I suppose I still think of myself as a bit of a socio-legal novice. I guess it depends on your definition of socio-legal research, but I probably would start by saying my dominant research interest is in trial by jury. That has mostly involved me in, I suppose, quite traditional doctrinal work, but I've also done historical research and I'm particularly interested in issues of gender historically and the jury system. So I would probably classify an article I wrote about women who, so they were Republican anti-state women in the 1920s in Ireland who intimidated jurors who were sitting trying Republican men and women who were on trial and sort of piecing together their campaign of jury intimidation, which had been forgotten, at largely speaking, or no one had looked at it in depth. So I would probably say that was my first kind of foray into socio-legal research, and I really enjoyed it. I hope to do more of that kind of historical work, particularly relating to women and the law historically, uh, which I think is very interesting. But I suppose moving on then to what I'm really going to talk to you today about, interviewing judges, I suppose that really kind of came out of my traditional doctrinal research on juries and looking at case law and so on. And I think maybe it was prompted by a number of things, but maybe one that I that I sort of haven't articulated before in articles or that sort of thing is that I think in an age where, you know, most academics in law now are not legal practitioners. I actually think that makes socio-legal research really, really much more important. And because at times I do think and reflect, well, this is what the cases are saying. But, you know, I sort of have fleeting moments where I think, well, if I was down in the law library doing cases in in Dublin, uh, I'd know this. Um, So obviously you can ask colleagues and friends who are barristers, you know, I'm getting to the stage now where I can ask judges as well. So Obviously, I'm getting old, but um, ask them informally, I mean. But really, if you want to sort of find out, I think, well, what's actually happening at a systemic level? I think something like interviewing or doing surveys becomes very important. So that's kind of just a thought I've had speaking to you today. As I say, I've never really articulated before, but that in the move from sort of the old, the lawyer who was down in the courts and did a few hours of teaching and a little bit of research to a purely academic, you know, legal academy, which has probably happened later in Ireland than in the United Kingdom, to be fair. Maybe there are exciting frontiers of opportunity for socio-legal research opening up in that way, I think, because, as I said, for me, not being in practice, but wanting to find out what's actually happening in practice, the socio-legal method became quite important. So I suppose also something that influenced me in thinking about interviewing judges was perhaps bizarrely the fact that my main research interest is in jury trials. So I suppose typically one would think of, well, that's jurors, isn't it? My colleagues who collaborate with me, in particular Neve Howland at University College Dublin, you know, we'd love to interview jurors and I hope we'll be able to do that at some point. But the law is unclear in that area at the moment and it's governed by common law contempt of court. So, you know, it's not really somewhere you want to go. You don't, We like our research, but we like our um, freedom from imprisonment. Um, 
<laughs> slightly more. So if it was legally possible and we knew that the law, because the law is unclear in Ireland as to whether it is permissible, we don't have a statutory ban on interviewing jurors like in the United Kingdom, but it's governed by unclear common law. I think then that sort of made us think, well, we can't interview the jurors really, so we should interview the judges. But actually, I think it's one of those examples of a situation where what feels maybe initially like an impediment to the research you want to do actually opens up something that of course is just as valuable because there's no jury trial without a presiding judge and to a large degree they shape the contours of that jury trial and the experiences the jurors will have so you know in a roundabout way you know initially we maybe thought we were doing a second best kind of method but actually, now I would say, well, no, it is really important because if you're interested in jury trials, you have to be interested in the judges who preside over them. So one thing that I find really fascinating about what you've just said is you've almost sort of been hinting at the fact that for you, interviewing judges was the easier option. There's a lot of debate about this, I think, across um, different jurisdictions about interviewing judges. I was at a seminar in Onyati recently with people from all over the world that were interviewing judges, and it became really apparent to me that in England it's almost harder to get access to the judges than anywhere else. And it's just taken me a year to get permission to interview judges. So I'm really interested in your story of what's happened in Ireland and what sort of preparation you needed to do before starting the interviews with the judges. And was it a drawn out process in terms of getting permission? Did you have to get permission? I'd love to hear about that. I think it would be interesting for socio-legal scholars all over the world, really, to hear about the access issues. Yeah, that issue of access is an interesting one. Um, I think it's even more interesting in our case, because at the time we did, we, we were gathering our data. So we started thinking about this in 2017, I think. At that time, there were no official procedures about getting permission. And in Ireland, uh, you know, under our written constitution, judicial independence is given a, a lot of weight. And sometimes that in the past has been, it's, it's given such uh, importance that it's almost been interpreted as saying, well, there can't really be rules for the judiciary as a whole. Each judge is an independent republic. Uh, now that is changing a bit. But at the time we were thinking about this and designing the study, there weren't any official rules in place about access to judges. So basically what we decided to do then was to say, well, we'll maybe try and approach the president, the chief justice or the president of the various courts to get their permission. The judges we were interested in interviewing were judges of the circuit criminal court and the central criminal court. The Central Criminal Court, similar to the English situation, would be like the High Court exercising its criminal jurisdiction. I think from memory, we wrote to the president of the High Court and he then replied to us and said, thank you for your letter, which I've passed to a particular judge who is the sort of unofficial head of the Central Criminal Court. Then, I suppose, and this probably also happens quite a lot in empirical research, you can have a series of fortunate or unfortunate events, I think. And we had a series of fortunate events. So at the time, there was a very senior barrister. She had been an academic previously. She's hugely interested in academic work. And I knew her and I had said, oh, you know, that we were planning this study. Uh, she said, oh, well, I know the judge who is the unofficial head of the Central Criminal Court. You know, I can help you to have that meeting. And very luckily, that barrister, she was made a judge of the High Court just basically at around the time that we were doing this. So we went and it was Mr. Justice McCarthy at the time. And we had the meeting with him and Miss Justice Nee Rafferty, the at that time relatively newly appointed judge, joined us in the meeting. But even at that meeting, you know, 
we were explaining our study and we had sent materials in advance, you know, with the interview guide and background to the interviews and so on. But even at that meeting with Judge McCarthy, you know, he said to us, well, I can't tell any other judge to participate in your study. You know, you'll have to approach them each individually. So basically, to make a long story short, I suppose we wanted to, there was no official procedure. We wanted to be as proper as we could. And we noted, for example, from Penny Darbyshire's book that she had gone, I think, to the maybe the Lord Chief Justice at the time or, you know, the heads of division of courts. So we sort of followed that template, but it didn't really... I mean, I think it was useful because, you know, it was, of course, useful to meet the judge who was in charge of the Central Criminal Court. But, you know, ultimately he sort of said, well, we are all independent. And as I said, there were a series of fortunate events. And so another fortunate event was that we made contact in the court service, a person who's since retired. But and I can't, you know, it's one of those things I can't remember. It, it may actually have been Judge McCarthy who recommended that we contact her. And this person was in the court service and she was the liaison between the judges in relation to judicial education. I contacted her. She was very pleasant. I think initially it might have been getting around the fact that, you know, how would we contact the judges? We could send letters, obviously, to their courts. We did that in some cases, but we also wanted to interview some retired judges. So we needed someone who had their addresses. This person in the court service became the conduit for passing on the letters. And actually, there was such a good response from the retired judges that we then decided, actually, we should be sending all the communications through this person. Because even though we clearly explained in our letter, which this person was kindly sending on for us. We weren't pretending to be a, an official study, but actually it sort of became clear that when this person sent an email to the judges, they took notice. They would all say, I got your, your letter through Alicia. And that sort of gave us a, a gravitas that we maybe wouldn't otherwise have had. So that was very fortunate. So yeah, I mean, again, sorry, I'm, I'm giving a very long answer here. It was very ad hoc, really, essentially. I mean, I suppose we didn't know what we were getting into because we hadn't done this type of research before and, and very little of this type of research of interviewing judges had been done. But since we did the study, they have introduced a formal protocol and you have to apply to a committee for permission. Um, so we were sort of, I think, the last people to do it under the old system. Yeah. That's really interesting. And can you tell us what your experience of interviewing judges was and what sort of insights you think it added to the project that wouldn't otherwise have been possible? Yeah, I mean, I kind of take those separately, I think. My experience of interviewing them was a sort of uh, <laughs> vague answer. It was very interesting for reasons I'll explain. I mean, it was interesting in lots of different levels. There was sort of the human side of, of interacting with them and arranging the interviews. And I suppose they, largely speaking, I mean, I didn't conduct all of the interviews. We shared them out among a, a research team and that included a, a research assistant. But I think I did four of the 22. And... In general, I found them, the judges were very friendly, they were very normal in the sense that, you know, you would get a phone call saying, and maybe this shouldn't be so revelatory to me, but a judge ringing to say, well, I can't do the interview today. And then they'd give like a personal reason, like a child having a minor accident at school or something. And so in some ways, it was quite humanizing in terms of my view of the judiciary. There were also, I think this is relevant to methods that even though sometimes we felt we had very clearly set out our credentials as researchers, we had our PhDs and we were published in good journals. And this was all clear in the initial communication we made to the judges. Often they agreed to meet us and we assumed it was on the basis of having read these background materials we had sent them. But then we would arrive in their chambers and we'd realise they hadn't read anything. 
they would sort of say, well, why are you here? Tell me about your project. So uh, that took some getting used to, I think. I mean, it's understandable because they're busy and so on, but it could also be quite funny because you would assume, uh, or we assumed, we've really impressed them now with our credentials and that's why we've been given access. But actually, you know, they've only sort of skimmed the letter, decided it's okay, and they want you to explain it in person when you arrive. A funny incident happened as well that we asked at the end of each interview, why did you decide to participate in the study? So barely a generic question but actually it revealed quite interesting things and we may actually work that into sort of a methods paper at some time Linda I might be sending it your way in draft (laughs) at some point but a lot of people said things like, well, it's really important to help academics. We rely on academic texts and, you know, it's giving something back. And if anyone wants to know, it's great that you want to know about the work that we do. But um, one quite senior judge said, ah, to help a poor PhD student. <laughs> there were quite a few moments like that where, yeah, I'd say our academic pride was, well, dented might be too strong, but <laughs> certainly we, we realized that the, the judges weren't sort of perceiving us in the way they thought maybe they were, because I think we kind of thought, well, they won't give access to everyone. And, you know, they're impressed by us because, you know, we are experts in this area of jury trial and so on. So that was, that's a little insight, I suppose, into the experiences. In terms of the value interviewing them added to our work, the sort of things we wouldn't have got without interviewing them, I think that's the data was incredibly rich in terms of not just the answers they gave. So, you know, I mean, we had various objectives. One of them would have been to find out, well, are all the judges giving a warning to jurors not to look up things on the internet? So there were very interesting findings on that, that not all of them were, that some of them were still clung to the view that you shouldn't tell people or refer to the internet, it will only give people ideas. Then among those who were giving the warning, there were huge variations in the level of detail that was being given. So So that was very valuable. You wouldn't get that sitting, you know, in your office reading cases because it's a practice issue. And you also, I suppose, even if you knew the practice, you wouldn't find out why are some of them giving different warnings. So, I mean, you were able to probe their rationales. But maybe that's kind of an an obvious answer in the sense that they were the things we wanted to find out. But there were also a lot of reflections that came through in their answers that we just didn't expect. So we didn't really ask a question on judicial training training, for example, but a huge amount came through on, I suppose it makes sense in a way that people will speak about the issues that really animate them. But it was just really interesting that over and over in the interviews, this question of training came through. So I mean, even though we didn't really have an interview question about training, we ended up with a huge amount of data about how judges learn to be judges in a jury trial. So we've actually published a paper on that in legal studies recently. So that was uh, unexpected data that we got. You know, and I suppose seeing the commonalities in some of the stuff we didn't expect was interesting as well. So, I mean, all of them really spoke about the respect they have for juries. You know, so we didn't really ask, do you think juries are a good thing? Or do you, you know, we didn't have any question about the merits of juries, really. It was more about issues of practice. You know, do you give them written materials? Do you give an internet warning? Do you try and generate a rapport with them? But I mean, they all sort of spoke at length about why they think juries are essential and why they think they work well. And I I always would have, and to some extent would still be a bit critical that judges sort of place, they're very praiseworthy and trustworthy of jurors. And it's not necessarily, in my view, always backed up with empirical data. But it was interesting to, you know, we were able to probe then and say, well, why do you think they're so good? And they had answers. This has kind of challenged my view a little bit. You know, they would say things like, well, the questions they ask, the issues they spot, 
the issues they spot that I don't spot. If an advocate doesn't ask a question, they're sending you a note saying, why wasn't that asked? I mean, there is something tangible there. You know, they are demonstrating their alertness and their intellectual ability by asking really good questions. So, you know, it has, I suppose, challenged me in my view that, well, there's no, judges have no proof whatsoever that juries are good or bad. Juries deliberate in secret. Judges don't know and they could be doing, you know, a crossword and not taking notes. It has challenged me to think, well, between the judges and the juries, there is an exchange and that can be questions. It can happen in other ways as well. So looking at things from the other angle, what the problems are, I'm interested in you sort of reflecting on perhaps the things that didn't go as well, because I think that's particularly useful for our listeners who are early career researchers and may not have much experience of interviews. I wonder in that context, if I could also ask you about the particular issue around elite interviewing. You've mentioned that judges, you know, are humans. <laughs> of course they are. And, you know, that part of it was sort of humanising that and realising that they have lives and children and their children go to school, etc. We've got another podcast on elite interviewing, which sort of brings up its own issues, I think. And a lot of social science research really focuses on interviewing down, if I can say. It has less to say about interviewing up. I think that's really important for socio-legal scholars who are often interviewing ministers or judges or lawyers, which could be said to be interviewing up in a way. So I'm interested generally in your experience of things that didn't go so well, but also particularly that feeling of elite interviewing and whether that's inhibiting at times. Very interesting. Interesting to be asked about things that didn't go well. I suppose we're all programmed in academia to talk about what was wonderful and what was amazing and... (laughs) The podcast is about the underbelly of research, Mark. You've got to be honest. You're on air. (laughs) Things that didn't go so well. Overall, we had good, you know, I would say very good professional interviews with the interviewees. There was one person, though, who just took exception. I'm sorry, I should have explained. I haven't explained up to now that we interviewed 22 judges, but also 11 barristers. And part of that was to sort of to try and maybe act as a bit of a check on what the judges were saying. And there were some divergences to make sure we weren't totally reliant on what the judges were saying. Although I accept we are largely interpreting what the judges said. And of course, there are limitations about that for lots of reasons but one member of the barrister cohort took grave exception basically to the whole idea of the study and uh, was a very hostile interviewee and actually the person doing the interviewing of that person was the PhD student in our team I mean we, we worked very collaboratively all our names are on the publications. We weren't a hierarchical team, but it was very unfortunate that the one interview that I would say went really badly, went really badly for the most junior person on the team, through no fault of his, I hasten to add. It was just hostility. And when he asked, you know, why did you decide to participate in the study? The answer was, well, I felt sorry for you. You know, it was that kind of vibe the whole way through. And I mean, basically, the person just took issue with every single question. Well, why are you asking me that? How would I know? You know, and there was a tone of, that's a stupid question. This is a pointless survey. But what I would say in that is, I suppose it's like anything in life. We tend to forget it. Certainly I do, because most of the time you're working with really professional people. You're encountering really nice people. But there are difficult people in all walks of life. But I mean, it can be difficult, I think, when you've had a good run of people. You know, so you've had your interviews are going really well. And then so 
suddenly it's like you've hit a brick wall. Although in another sense, what I would say is that having had good experiences is helpful because you can say, you know, it, like my view on that person would be, well, sorry, 22 judges have done this interview and none of them questioned why we were doing it. They all thought it was worthwhile. So part of me would be <laughs> would be thinking things that I cannot say on your podcast, um, but very unpleasant for our colleague who was in that situation and who was also in the situation of not being as expert as as me or the other PI on the project and probably, you know, there were a lot of dynamics I'm sure going on there. He was possibly afraid that maybe we would think it was his fault, which of course we didn't. I mean, that was something that didn't go well. One question didn't go that well. And that was, so basically, I had wondered at the outset, would judges, you know, would they be very quick to say, I can't answer that, it's not appropriate. So, you know, we asked them, what do you think should be reformed in relation to the jury system? They were happy to talk about that. You know, they talked about everything. They said jurors should be paid expenses, which they're not in Ireland. And which you could say is sort of a, a kind of a political thing for judges to say, because it's basically saying the exchequer should be putting aside money to pay jurors. But that was all fine. So none of the things, questions I expected to be sort of problematic were problematic. But the one that caused difficulty was, and I think you're going to smile uh, at this, Linda, uh, was, do you think the gender of a judge makes a difference in a jury trial? For some naive reason, I didn't expect that to be a problem. And I didn't foresee it. And I think for male judges in particular, a sizable proportion of them, I mean, they approach the question as if it were a trap. The dynamic changed, you know, so there were usually requests to, you know, well, what do you mean? And there were some glib answers like, well, I'm a man, so I wouldn't know. And there were also some revealing answers, like some interpreted the question as if we were calling into question the ability of women judges, which was quite interesting. Some male judges leapt to the defense of their female colleagues and said, well, I'm sure they're just as good as we are, which, of course, is revealing in itself. Maybe it's wrong to classify it as a problem, but it, it was a question that gave rise to a lot of ongoing reflection while we did the interviews. Are we asking the right thing? Are we, when we're being called on to elaborate, are we elaborating on it in the right way? I think ultimately I would say it probably wasn't a problem in that the female judges all responded to it and all wanted to talk about it. Um, Interesting. And mm. were very willing and able to point out what they regarded as potential differences. In general, the men were very caught, male participants were very cautious about answering the question. And the safest answer seemed to be to say, I don't think it makes a difference. No. Whereas women were saying things like, well, of course, it makes a difference. It makes a difference from the moment we're born into the world. Why wouldn't it make a difference in a courtroom? So we have a chapter on gender in our report based on, on that question where we tease out some of those issues. So maybe it's wrong to classify that as a problem. It was a challenge, I'd put it that way. I think it brought out very interesting findings, you know, like women, female judges saying things like that, that they had detected discomfort in male barristers in sex cases and stuff like that when intimate things would happen to be discussed in, in huge detail. Uh, mm. But the judges and, you know, the judge herself was saying, well, that's my job. It's it's a rape case. We have to talk about penetration. We have to talk about anatomy. But she had noticed that some male advocates would be uncomfortable and nervous and so on because she was a woman. So they're the things that come to mind. But maybe the second one is, is less of a problem or something that didn't, you know, 
maybe it's funny how I think of it as as a problem. I mean, even talking to you now, I'm kind of thinking, well, it wasn't really a problem. We got useful data out of it. But I probably need to reflect more on that because, well, why should I see a question that provokes maybe discomfort in the in some of the interviewees as a problem? But I suppose I do because like everything else was smooth. We got the information. We got the variations in practice. They were engaged. But yeah, as I'm talking about it, maybe it's not legitimate on my part, but I, I would put that in the problem box. But then, as you can see, I'm at war with myself saying, well, hold on a minute. We got very interesting data. So that wasn't a problem. <laughs> I suppose it's that sometimes questions are socially awkward and they create a pause or, as you say, a disruption, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're not good yeah. research questions and that sometimes we yeah. should be prepared to have a little awkward moment. I suppose part of that is as well as thinking where you put the awkward question. You know, if you realise it's difficult for some people, you might put it yeah. at the end of the interview schedule, but you still yeah, actually, it. <laughs> Yeah, we, we actually didn't change it. It was towards the end. Uh, but yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I have a feeling that was part one of a question, but I've forgotten what part two was. Sorry, Linda. The second part was, I, I was just asking about elite interviews, you know, was the fact that you were interviewing people who have quite a lot of status in our society. Do you think that made a difference? Do you think sometimes you couldn't push them as far as you wanted to? I mean, it's very difficult to be objective, I suppose, about one's own behavior, the behavior of the team. But I think in general, we we stuck to our guns, to use that expression. You know, I think we had our questions and we asked them. I think one thing that that's important to say, I think, in the context of this study was we weren't really asking, with the exception of that gender question, the questions were not controversial questions. They were questions of practice on which reasonable people could take different positions. Now, that's not to say people didn't get animated about off the top of my head, one example would be that some judges took the view everything should be explained extremely clearly to a jury. And, you know, people said things like, say it once, say it twice, say it three times. Whereas another judge would be getting very animated and saying, I think this is ridiculous, you know, this over-explanation, patronising people. So, you know, it's not there weren't sort of strongly held views on the issues, but part of our success in getting access part of our success in getting answers and getting lots of data was that, you know, we weren't asking about sexual offence cases. We weren't asking about sentencing, which can be a very controversial issue and, and very newsworthy. To some extent, there was, I think, a happy coincidence that the things we were interested in and that we believe are important, you know, jury trials and how they're conducted, we were interested in things like, are you giving the internet warning? Do you try and develop a rapport with the jury? Do you ever comment on the verdict? You know, so again, on things like commenting on the verdict, there would have been strong views, you know, well, sometimes in a difficult case, I would say to the jury afterwards, you absolutely reached the right view. Whereas another judge would say, I would never say anything that would be totally inappropriate. Yeah, so I think that may also have played into or affected the, or is relevant to your question about elite interviews in that the topics weren't really uncomfortable or awkward topics. And I think as well, there were a lot of kind of follow-up questions. I don't recall feeling that issues of status played out very much in the interviews. I felt that the interviewees were open. And again, I think it really does probably go back to the fact that we weren't really pushing them on, mm. you know, or we weren't investigating very difficult issues. I mean, we got very long transcripts covering the questions we wanted. I can think of one judge who was more reserved and certainly seemed more concerned about confidentiality. So, for example, only one of the judges didn't permit us to tape record. So I did that interview. Yeah, I think probably issues of status actually did play out in that one because it was very much like 
I was treated like a journalist, I think, like someone who was going to possibly trap the judge. The person was quite fierce in sort of saying, because I said, well, we're audio recording the interviews. Do you give your consent? And the person was very emphatic to an almost angry degree that, no, of course, they weren't consenting to being audio recorded. So I had to take notes by hand and the answers were quite short. So overall, as a cohort, I don't think issues of status played out. But in that one interview, there was definitely a power dynamic. I got the answers. I wanted to the questions I wanted they weren't as thorough as other answers I still I think came away with a sense of what that person was like as a judge in a jury trial and their questions reflected or their answers reflected that I should say but in terms of the atmosphere in the interview room it was made very clear to me at the start that you know basically under no circumstances am I going to consent to being recorded and the judge referred to uh, an example where a journalist had basically surreptitiously I think audio recorded someone which obviously wasn't what I was going to do but this issue of recording really touched a nerve with this particular person but then interestingly at the end of the interview the person said there was nothing controversial in that I'm sorry I didn't let you record it yeah it's interesting in a way what they're demonstrating is their vulnerability that they've had a bad experience in the past and I think so it's quite interesting power dynamics I, I guess in that one yeah yeah but also it came back to that point that at the end the person felt well that tape could be played and I'm not talking about anything no headline is going to really get out of that if, even if it was played on the radio people would probably think well yeah there's nothing very juicy in that I think it all kind of went back to I think because the topics were uncomfortable controversial and maybe quite academic or perceived as quite academic that that then meant I think that there was an openness and to some degree a relaxation Mm -hmm. and I think many of them sort of felt their interaction with you as an interviewer to me suggested that they were just very happy that someone wanted to talk about charging a jury you know how they prepare and actually there was a sense I think that a lot of them were were really very happy to share well well now I have templates that I've made for myself let me show you those and they really wanted to kind of show us their method and yeah sure I mean and you're conscious of the power dynamic in approaching them because they are judges. So could I ask you another question before we go on to talk about your choice of background reading and that's really just reflecting back on the topic and the project what would you do differently if you were to start again is there anything you'd do differently? I think I would actually probably do a mock interview with a friend or something and ask them to pretend that they were the judge. Because what I found was I did actually find the first interview I did slightly nerve wracking. Yeah, and I wouldn't have expected this. I found that when I asked a question, sometimes I was inclined to suggest an answer, which of course is what you're totally not supposed to do. I don't think it happened in in the main interview, but when we were going through the demographic sheet, I made an awful boo-boo, which was, well, basically, I should have just given them the demographic sheet to fill out for themselves. But instead, I started, like, talking them through it. And I suggested what age bracket the person might be in. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, nerves can do funny things to you. So I think in my own head, I would plan the minutiae much more of what I'm actually doing because I found when I went in there, yeah, I mean, I, I started asking them the demographic questions when I should have just been handing them the sheet because I was nervous yeah I think maybe that kind of thing that it's it is a different skill set and you know if you're used to kind of you know writing articles or doing your DPhil or PhD I mean it sounds quite obvious it's a human interaction but it's a human interaction of a very particular type and I think you do need to sort of plan out in advance step by step what's going to happen I'm going to hand them this sheet they will fill that out then I will take out the recording device I will show it to them I think just a bit more self-preparation but I mean I found half an hour into the first interview I was fine but I 
think a bit of a mock interview with, you know, one of the team or a friend or something might have been useful because there's a practical element to it. That's not always our forte, I feel, as academic researchers. You have to make sure, very obvious things, we have to make sure the dictaphone battery is, you know, you have spare batteries, that the dictaphone is on, that if you pause it, you're, you know, so those kind of things, they're very obvious. But at the same time, if you haven't done it before, well, I think I was probably going in thinking I'm concentrating on the questions, but actually the questions are really important, mm-hmm. obviously, but you have to multitask and you have to, you know, probably that's what I would say to someone who hasn't done the research before, that it's easy to become a bit befuddled in the room the first time. But it's like anything else then, you become quite slick at it. I think there are other things like you can't have too many pieces of paper that you need to flip around and sometimes you don't have a table in front of you, you might be sitting down in a sort of more casual chair, in which case it's useful to have a clipboard. It's all those little things, isn't it, that really put you at your ease when you're doing interviews. Yeah, I mean, there was, I think, something else as well, which, again, sounds very obvious, but we showed the judges samples of written materials from other jurisdictions to see, because in Ireland, basically, as we discovered, judges don't give juries written materials, which is now very unusual. But we had examples of route to verdict documents and question trails and so on, uh, which we would printed off, but we printed them off in black and white. I remember the first thing a lot of participants said was, oh, well, that's not very nicely presented. I'd want it in colour. And then you'd have to say... Well, it actually is in colour, but we only printed it off in black. Yeah, so I mean, it's funny things like that can derail you as well, because I suppose we were probably thinking, well, we're more interested in the layout and whether they think it's a good idea. And I know it sounds really simple. Like in retrospect, I would go back and like, why didn't I print that off in colour? But you have so much to organise that you can sort of overlook the small details. So, Mark, you've been very kind in providing three references for background reading. I think I'd like to add your piece in legal studies to the list that we give out as well. I think that'd be helpful for people to see what you did with the data. But could I just ask you why you've chosen these three pieces? The first one is the Ogloff and Clough and Goodman Delahunty, the jury project. Could you talk us through why you think that's valuable to read? Yeah, so it was particularly valuable for us, I suppose, because it was a study asking judges about their conduct of jury trials. You know, we had this idea, we would do this study where we would ask judges about jury trials. And then it's very comforting to go and find, well, actually, other researchers have done this already. And it does make you feel, I mean, I think it's easy now with hindsight when, you know, we've a report, two articles, so I can send you two articles to add to the list to sort of feel at this remove, well, this was always going to be a success. This was always going to work. We were always going to get the participants. But actually, at the beginning of a study like this, you really don't know any of those things. And to see, I suppose, a study asking judges about their conduct of jury trials, it was a bit validating. I mean, in retrospect, it seems a bit silly to say this, but it sort of made it feel like, well, this is worth doing. The methodology Ogloff et al. used in that study was a survey methodology, which we didn't use, but it influenced us more in terms of the kind of topics they were and themes that they were investigating. The second piece is Penny Derbyshire's Sitting in Judgment, which is a fantastic book because Penny got access, such fantastic access to judges. So perhaps I'm anticipating what you're going to say, but why don't you tell me your own words why you've chosen this book? Yeah, I just echo that, really. I've always thought of it as a very important book. I think socio-legal research can be a bit daunting if you're just done traditional doctrinal legal scholarship. I think it sort of bridges the, helps bridge the gap a little bit, or it did for me because it was someone coming from 
a law background who'd written about juries and then had sort of done this empirical work. Yeah, it's probably quite a personal reason for choosing it. And I mean, it's on a huge scale. And there's also a chapter in Derbyshire's book about juries in particular. So that was very useful because it enabled us then to compare, you know, findings about what Derbyshire had found and what we had found in, in relation to things like use of written materials and judicial education. Yeah, I think it's a helpful bridge. I would kind of see it in that way that if you haven't done this kind of work before, it's useful to look at. But obviously, it was of particular interest to us because it was covering some of the same ground with mm. juries. Again, we didn't use the same methodology. We used semi-structured interviews. We didn't do any work shadowing of judges. Again, I suppose maybe coming back to your question earlier about elite interviewing and so on. I mean, obviously, interviewing elite people of itself has their own methodological limitations. But I think personality wise, I would find something like shadowing judges quite difficult because I think you're too close, maybe. Or I would be too close for me. No criticism any Derbyshire but I think at least when you do an interview the interview's over you step out of the room mm. yeah but obviously Penny Derbyshire used a variety of methodologies and the third piece is Navdosky, Kervioski, Clough and Ogloff in your own words take us through that one Mark this is linked to the first one so the first one where I said they used a survey methodology in your own words, was phase two of that project, which was the jury project, a survey of Australian and New Zealand judges. So in in your own words piece, for that phase in the research, they did interviews, again, on themes like those we were looking at. So charging the jury, communicating with juries, juror comprehension, the provision of written materials. So, you know, again, it was helpful for us to see, well, you know, there are a variety of methodologies you can use to ask these questions. So they used semi-structured interviews views with judges in the state of Victoria in Australia. Now, again, our methodology, certainly our published outputs are a little bit different in that in that piece, the authors tend not to quote at much length from the participants, whereas we liked quoting at length, or we made a decision to give sort of longer quotes, because we found a lot of the time the way judges expressed themselves were quite colourful, that added interest. So, I mean, I think it's useful when you're looking at different, you know, even within the same method, there are different slants you can take on. So for us, it was important to, maybe it depends though on the amount of colour, maybe Irish judges are more colourful than judges in Victoria in the language they use. But it was important for us to to produce quotes that were a little bit longer. If people look at the articles, and if anyone wants the report, I can send them an electronic copy, they can just email me. But I hope that some of the quotes might cause people to smile, because I think that's important in research too. Sometimes it was just the way judges expressed themselves that was amusing. I mean, kind of going off on a tangent now, but for example, when we showed them a route to verdict documents or question trails, which are sort of a framework that a jury could be given to go through various issues sequentially, a lot of the judges drew analogies between, because a lot of the judges hadn't seen these materials before, even though they're very common now throughout the common law world. A huge number of the judges made, drew analogies with board games. We enjoyed whenever we were able to include those in the report and so on, because one judge said, well, it's like a children's game. It's like something you'd play with the kids at Christmas. And then I think our favourite one is down the ladder, up the snake. I wouldn't like that. <laughs> Great. Well, Mark, thank you so much for giving up your time, for giving such a detailed interview about your experiences of interviewing. I know that there'll be early career academics that will really get a lot out of it. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. I feel like I've been on the legal equivalent of Desert Island Discs. 
Thanks so much for listening to this Talking About Methods session. If you'd like to see the list of publications that we referred to in the podcast, please go to frontiers.csls.ox.ac.uk. If you have any ideas for a blog or a podcast, please do get in touch with Linda Mulcahy at the Centre for Socio-Legal Studies. Thanks again. Bye.